All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. The book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Book of Hebrews, chapter 6. We have a lot to cover this morning. And this morning, we're going to read a huge chunk. And we're going to read and then study a huge chunk in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 13 all the way through to the end of chapter 7. Exactly. Yeah. All right, so as we do, all right, we've got a lot to read. So let's get reading. By the way, I use the ESV version of the Bible. Um, and if you have a different translation, it's all good. Still, I'd let you guys know that in case you were wondering. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, through um, chapter 7, the whole of chapter 7. Um, and as we always do, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 6, from verse 13. Reads, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained a promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 verse 1 reads, For this Melchizedek... King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returned him from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And when he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of, of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers through these, though these also are descendant from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham 
for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11 of chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of, of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, but because they were prevented by death from continuing an offer, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, was no, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the Lord of the oath, which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Woo! Let's pray, God. Give us understanding. Your word is so amazing. And you are so gracious in not leaving us to figure out who you are and what you're about, but you have provided your scriptures that help us understand who you are. And so as we come to this part of your scripture that talks much and exalts Jesus Christ, help us to know him, because in knowing him, we would know you better. In his name we pray, amen. 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 Have a seat. So 
Um, last week, we looked at one of the most challenging sections in the book of Hebrews. It was about the likelihood that in our church family and in, in, within Christianity, there are those who are spiritually immature. Um, meaning that they should be further along in their Christian growth than they are. And we also had to accept the fact that, you know, in the church, there are those, or there will be those, who are apostates, those who, despite having spiritual experiences, will end up rejecting Jesus and his church. Um, it was a challenge. It was a challenging passage, and within community groups throughout the week, I know that there were some debates, some heated, but I think mostly friendly. I hope so. Last week, we were also encouraged by the fact that if you have been soundly saved, we, you are God's beloved, and you have confidence for better things in the future. Our passage for this morning, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> um, it's not just long, but it, as we read, you realize that it talks about a lot of things that you're just not familiar with. And so this morning, I don't have the time to look at every detail. I really don't. I wished I did, and I wished you did. Um, but you don't. You have to go somewhere, you know, after the service. But, and so this morning, I'm going to highlight a few things um, that really stand out. And I hope that in your personal life, individually and in community groups throughout the week, you'll be able to really um, dive deeper into the text and unearth many other truths that will be of benefit to you. Okay, um, Our passage for this morning, what it does is it returns to the discussion of Jesus as our superior high priest, um, which began um, in chapter 5. Okay, which began in chapter 5. But it starts off about, with talking about the promises of God, the promises of God. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, you'd know and be sure that God has made many promises to you in his scripture, in his word. Okay, for example, God has promised um, to forgive you of your sins and God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. The Bible is not just a manual on how to live, but it's, um, you know, it's a book that lets us know and understand who God is and what his promises to us are, okay? And so full of promises, but in light of all of God's promises, also Michael Kruger is right in saying this, so often there remains a tickle of doubt in the back of the mind, Meaning that God has made promises, but some of the times we doubt those promises. And the author of Hebrews is aware of this tendency. And so at this point in Hebrews, what he does is he turns our attention to the story of Abraham. Um, to remind us that God is a trustworthy God who keeps his promises. In chapter 6, verses 11 to 12, author of Hebrews exhorts Christians to not be sluggish, but instead to follow the example of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. 
That's what we ended with last week. And so what he does now is that he points us to Abraham as an example of someone who through faith and patience inherited God's promises. Look at verse 13, 14, and 15 again. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained a promise. In the Jewish scriptures, there is no greater example of obedience than Abraham. Okay, And his faithfulness to God and his obedience to God was mainly displayed at the point, okay, at the moment when he was willing to sacrifice his beloved son. Abraham displayed exemplary obedience and was just about to sacrifice his son when God stopped him and provided a ram to take Isaac's place. And as a result of Abraham's obedience, God blessed him and made his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Look at verse 16 of chapter 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And so if you were invited to a court of law to stand as a witness, what will happen? What will happen is that before you share, before you testify of whatever you're contributing to, you will put your hand on a Bible okay, and swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the exactly and then you would come you guys are great thanks for following along and then you would conclude with these words so help me god by doing this what's happening is that you're promising that what you're about to say is trustworthy because you are swearing on a higher power As humans, when we make an oath, we swear by God. But what we have to consider in this context is when God wants to make an oath, who or what does he swear by? And this gets interesting because there is nothing or no one higher than God. And so who or what does God swear by? Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by who? By himself. Obviously. Let me remind you that God did not make an oath because... Let me go say that again. I said that wrong. God did not need to make an oath... Because he's God and his promises are always true. But he did so in this context in order to help Abraham. Put differently, God is aware that we struggle with doubt. And so he gives us an extra layer of assurance through an oath. And we can trust the promises God has made not just because of an oath, 
but mainly because of who he is. Look at verse 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Verse 17, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast um, to the hope set before us. That's a, that's a lot in there. But one thing that stands out to me is that like, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for you not to lie. But it's impossible for God to lie. What's this reminding of us? That God is so different to us. He is unbelievably different. When we have the audacity to try and fit God into a box by um, trying to compare him um, to what we know, we are stepping out of our intellectual capacities to understand him. He is so different from us. God does not say one thing and then cancels it out and does something else. God doesn't make a commitment and then change his mind. Our hope comes from the fact that God is a trustworthy God who cannot lie. And so God's oath and God's character supplies us with, look at the end of verse 18, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What's this hope all about, you may ask? Look at verse 19, answers it. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The author of Hebrews here expounds the stability of Christian hope, calling it a what? A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This hope is not only sure and steadfast, but it's also a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And so this is all a reference to the Holy of Holies in the temple, which was where God's presence dwelt and only the high priest once a year was able to enter into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifices for his sins and the sins of the people. However, the high priests are not the only ones who have had the privilege of entering into the inner place. Jesus has also entered Look at verse 19, 20 again. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. According to Christianity, according to Christianity, true hope is not a principle or a feeling but true and genuine hope is a person. In other words, hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And so the question I have for you now is, who or what do you hope in? Or who or what are you hoping in? Recently, 
actually. <laughs> um, as when I, one of the things that I've realized that I've placed my hope in um, as someone who's called to the ministry and who has started a church and wants to see this church thrive and make like just an impact in this city, one thing I've placed my hope in is my accent. Let's be honest, right? Apparently, Americans love the British accent. And so there are times when, honestly, I place my hope in that and my Britishness to get me to places. And, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a positive side to it, but there's also a dark side to it where I'm placing my hope on this particular thing rather than... Jesus Christ. And so who or what is your hope in? George Guthrie says this, the secret of our souls rests firmly on in the eternal high priestly world of Christ by which he has entered into God's presence on our behalf and made a way for us to follow. Our stability of soul thus stems from all the power and provisions to be found as we stand before the face of God. And so why should you be confident that God is going to keep his promises? We're being reminded here that because of what Jesus has done, when Jesus died on the cross making payment for the sins of humanity, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. This happened in order to show us that Jesus' sacrifice, sacrificial death, tore down the separation between us and God. As a result, we now have access to God and we not only have access to God but we have an opportunity to have an intimate relationship with the God of the Bible and the God of the Bible is described as the creator of the universe that's awesome guys and if you're a Christian here, you've heard this before, but think about it. Because of what Jesus has done, because he has entered into the Holy Holy, because the curtain has been torn and we now have access, we get to have a relationship with God. That's crazy. And so I would want you now to make a note of that. And then this week, just reflect. Just reflect on the fact that, man, you have access to God. Whenever you want and however many times you need. All because of Jesus. And so in what situation do you need to seize the hope of Jesus as the anchor of your soul? What changes would, you, would take place in your life this week if you were to truly believe without question that God will keep his promises to you in Christ? Jesus, as our great high priest, is also described as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at verse 20 again. It says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, this is not the first time um, the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus in this way. And so the question is, what does this mean? Who is Melchizedek? 
a friend of mine today um, during the week I kind of was talking about Melchizedek and you know she was like how do you even spell his name <laughs> how do you even pronounce his name um it's not his name's not just hard to pronounce or whatever like that but Melchizedek is a bit of a mysterious character in the bible he's this obscure figure and many of you have probably not heard of him and this is because there's not much information about him. Um, he's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Um, he makes a brief appearance in the book of Genesis when he meets with Abraham. He gives Abraham some gifts, okay? He gives him bread and wine and then blesses him. Abraham then responds to Melchizedek's gifts and blessings and then gives him a tenth of everything he owns. After this, Melchizedek abruptly disappears. Nothing else is said about him until Psalm 110, when the psalm identifies the Messiah as a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. And now here in chapter 7, he makes an offer experience. And uh, the author of Hebrews is fascinating. Remember, we don't know who he is, but he's fascinating. He's talking about Jesus as high priest, and then he takes a break and talks about spiritually mature Christians, and then talks about apostates, and then comes back to the Jesus as Melchizedek and high priest. And so he's back talking about Melchizedek, and the writer of Hebrews does this with a purpose in mind. Albert Moeller helps us with this. He says, Hebrews does not merely reference this encounter. It draws deep theological comparisons between Melchizedek and Jesus that inform how we understand Christ's identity as our high priest. In other words, to get a better understanding of who Jesus is, we have to understand who Melchizedek is. The first thing we learn about Melchizedek in Hebrews is that he was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. We also find out that the name Melchizedek means king of justice and the title king of Salem that he has means king of peace. Stick with me here. This is going to get detailed and technical. But I promise you, you will learn something. We also find out that Melchizedek has no record. There's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors. Look at verse 3. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What does that mean? Melchizedek is viewed as great, and his greatness is seen, especially when Abraham, great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Melchizedek is also viewed as a, high, a great high priest because he lives forever. Look at verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. In other words, the priests 
who collect tithes are men who die, so Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. Priests, who are they? Priests in the Bible were from descendants of a man named Levi. Levi was one of Jacob's sons. If you lived in Old Testament times and you wanted to be a priest, you would have to be from the lineage of Levi. It's the same as saying, if one day I woke up and I wanted to be king of England, I would have to be from the royal family. Okay? And that would be impossible. And so to become a priest back then, you needed to come from the lineage of Levi. When the priests took over the prom- uh, sorry, when the Israelites took over the promised land, the Levites, who are descendants of Levi, were not given a portion of land. Instead, they were given the responsibility of overseeing and managing the details and logistics of the temple. But Melchizedek, who's another priest, who has no connection with the Levites, shows up, encounters Abraham, relates to Abraham as if he was a priest, okay? And Abraham relates to him as if he was a priest and tithes to him and tithes to him but what makes melchizedek different is that he does not originate from the tribe of levi and nobody knows where he comes from and so the author of hebrews brings up melchizedek because he wants to make a very important argument melchizedek's priestly order is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And his ultimate aim in doing this, in bringing up Melchizedek and why he's superior high priest, is to show us that Jesus' priesthood is better than the priesthood of the Levites. And this idea is related to the larger theme of the book of Hebrews. Look at what Michael Kruger says. He says, Christ is superior to all aspects of the Old Testament. He's better than angels, Moses, Joshua, and even the Levitical priesthood. In other words, Melchizedek is in the Bible because he serves as a symbol of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He exists to show that Christ's priesthood is superior to the Old Testament priesthood. Hi. (laughs) It will make sense, I promise. And so this is exactly what the author of Hebrews goes on to do next. In the last few verses of chapter 7, the author of Hebrews continues to show us why Jesus is a superior high priest and why we should always turn to him as our true high priest. And so the question is, why is Jesus a superior to all other high priests? First of all, Jesus is priest and king. 
Jesus is priest and king. Look at verse 13 and 17 of chapter 7. It says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descendant from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And so during the time of the Old Testament, priests could only come from the tribe of Levi, as I said. But however, Jesus was not. Jesus is considered a priest, but he was not part of the tribe of Levi. He didn't come from there. He came from the um, tribe of Judah. And Jesus' tribe is important. Because of this, it means that he's not just a priest, but he's also a king. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is like no other priest in the Old Testament. He is priest who can also rule as king. He cannot only save us as a priest, he, he can also care for us and protect us as a king. Keep this in mind. The goal of Hebrews is to sharpen our view and to clarify our view of who Jesus is. And right here, we are reminded that Jesus is not just a high priest, but he's also a king. And that's so important. Number two, why is Jesus a superior high priest? Jesus' priesthood is forever. The Old Testament requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. This is because the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence in a better hope. Jesus Christ, through him we draw near to God. All of that. Verse 20 and 21, let's read it. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The author of Hebrews quotes a psalm here to remind us that all that God has established in Jesus will not be changed. Christ's priesthood is certain. Look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Unlike the priests in the Old Testament, Jesus' priesthood is guaranteed forever. We've already discussed this whole topic of oaths back in chapter 6. God never breaks his promise. And when he swears an oath, he has given us an extra degree of assurance. And so Michael Kruger says this, Jesus will always be your high priest. God is not changing his mind on this one. He will never back out. Jesus will always be there interceding for us. Who else in the world could ever be that kind of savior? No one. Jesus intercedes forever. That's another reason why Jesus is a superior high priest. In Israel's history, there have been many priests. Every priest was temporary. And this is because death prevented them from remaining in office forever. But like Melchizedek, who's described uh, as having neither beginning of days nor end of life, Jesus lives forever. His priesthood lasts forever. And because his priesthood lasts forever, look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, you or no one else in this world 
can contribute to what Jesus has done to save you. Your past, present, and future sins are forgiven, and Jesus, our forever high priest, is with God the Father as the sign that your sins are forgiven. As your high priest, Christ is your advocate and the mediator between you and God. He is continually in the presence of God interceding on your behalf. The high priests in the Old Testament were only allowed to access God's presence once a year. And they accessed it in order to make atonement for their sins and the sins of the other people. But Jesus makes a never-ending intercession before God for us. His continuous presence before God assures us that our sins have been paid for and forgiven. This wonderful assurance frees us from guilt and from the fear of failure. If you are a Christian, remember that Christ has paid the price for your sins once and for all. Jesus is our superior high priest because Jesus is a perfect priest. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Unlike any other high priest in history, Jesus is sinless. His priesthood is different because he is perfect. Listen, look at how he's described in verse 28, 26. Sorry. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted um, about the he- above the heavens. And because of this, look at verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. High priests would have to continually make sacrifices for themselves and for the people. But here we're reminded that Jesus is perfect and he's unlike high priests because he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day. And more importantly, Jesus' perfect sinless life allowed him to do something unthinkable, something no other priest would have ever dreamed of doing. Jesus does not have to offer daily sacrifices for his sins because he was sinless. But he also does not need to offer daily sacrifices for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Chapter 7 ends with one final contrast between the two priestly systems. Look at verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. One of the things 
that makes Christianity compelling and controversial is because of Jesus Christ. You can have conversations with people you know and talk about how Jesus is, you know, compassionate and loving and did miracles and all of those things. And I think you'll have a pretty friendly conversation. But the moment you start to bring up the fact that Jesus is perfect, the fact that Jesus is who they need in order to have access to God, the conversations will get interesting. We are broken, sinful people who are separated from a holy God and no ordinary priest, no earthly system, no president, no prime minister, no animal sacrifice is enough to bridge that gap. What we need is the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, who became human so that he can represent us before God as our great high priest forever. Let me remind you that this is not a makeup story. This is truth that we are encountering this morning. Everything that we have tried to understand about Jesus is true. He is a perfect high priest who lived a sinless life, died the death of a sinful man, but rose again having victory. Victory over death and victory over sin and ascended to heaven. And he is now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us as our representative and as our high priest. And so this is not a made-up story. This is not an allegory. This is true. This is the reality in which we are living in. It really is. And so Christian, read scripture and reflect on Jesus praying and asking that God would help you grasp these truths in a way that is truth and affects the reality that you live in. Because Jesus died once for all, he brought the sacrificial system to an end. In the same way, you don't have to look for another way for your sins to be forgiven. Christ was the final sacrifice for you. (laughs) 
with such a savior available to us, why? Why turn to anything else? Only Jesus is sufficient to save. Only he is worthy of our hope and trust. He really is. And I hope this morning as we did a quick study of who he is from Hebrews after saying Melchizedek and you're like who's Melchizedek all of these high priestly types all of that I hope that you leave you leave this morning with not just a greater appreciation of who Jesus is but a reminder that all that is said of him in scripture is true is true it really is and so praise him that's why as a church that's why Christians make a big deal out of Jesus because he's the only one that can save and so if you're here this morning and you're like I, I, I'm exploring Christianity and I don't know kind of like what this is all about and it's all confusing and um, there's so much to learn. I would say to you to take a step of faith and trust Jesus with what you know about him now. He is real, he is alive, and if you take one step towards him, he will reveal himself to you in ways that will blow your mind. That's what happened to me many years ago. I was a young lad living in London. I was trying to be a DJ. I was trying to be a soccer player. I was seeking success in starting. I was just trying to do everything I can in order to, to make it, to find fulfillment in this life. And one day in my living room, it was late at night, I happened to switch on TV and there was this preacher talking about how awesome Jesus is. And then I heard, and I knew something about Jesus. I did. I'd read the Bible. I'd grown up in the church, but I had just turned away and didn't want anything. And so as I heard it, I was like, look, what have I got to lose? I was so compelled and intrigued by what he said. I said, Do you know what? Jesus, if you are real... I ask that you would reveal yourself to me. And he has done that for me and so many. And so if you're here, I would say take that risk. And it's not even a risk. You will find that it's not a risk, but it would be the greatest decision you've ever made. Let's pray. God, help, give us understanding beyond what we covered this morning. You are at work in this place. You are at work in every heart. And so I pray that you would 
you are continuing that work, and I pray that we would all surrender to all that you've shown us this morning. In his name we pray, amen.